It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Hi, this is Matt Shea. I am filling in for Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell. They're on another one of their road trips, but trust me, they are listening. And I am here with none other than Nathan Miller himself, and he's my Allstate guy. I'm always in good hands with him. Nathan, how are you this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, Matt Shea, I almost said Gary and Suzanne, but I know they're <laughs> listening, so their energy must be coming through somehow, and that means we got to be on our good behavior, Matt. That's a very good idea. We have got quite a special show. This is greatly, you can't get any more Seattle, any more Pacific Northwest than this. We got David Williams on us, and many out there know the name. He's been in the studio before, but he's a curator of the Hydroplane and Race Boat Museum, and moments ago, he's driven at least 24 different unlimited hydroplanes that we know of some that go back over a century ago. But David's on the air. Let's get that guy in. Hey, good morning to you, David, and thank you for being with us. Well, gosh, good morning. It's great to be here. I I just want to clarify, even though I've driven boats that are over 100 years old, I'm not quite 100 years old yet. Oh, that was my next question. I couldn't (laughs) tell, but I'm glad you cleared that up for us. (laughs) Great guy. David, let's get to the history of it. My first shot here is, what got you interested in the hydroplanes? Well, it, it's a pretty typical story. I was a kid uh, growing up in the Pacific Northwest. At the time, we were in Coeur Idaho, 1963, and I went to the Diamond Cup. Um, I was five years old, four and a half, almost five, and it was just so colorful and exciting, and the boats were bright red and green, and the water was blue, and the rooster tails were shiny and sparkly. And I just fell in love with it. Uh, you know, imagine a kid today who would go down to uh, Quest Field and watch a football game, and and you know, fall in love with the idea of being a, a Seahawk player. So, um, absolutely, I just fell in love with the sport, and that's kind of all I wanted to do. That's what happened to me. I have friends who live on all sides of Lake Washington. They live in Renton. They live in Skyway. When we were little, the big boys were towing their little models that they made out of wood, their hydroplanes on string, and we wanted to fit in. And then they would quiet everybody. You could hear a boat running because it was Seafair Week. Then we would go home and watch them on the news, and I was hooked. I pushed away my Tonka toys. My Schwinn, I put that 10-foot string, and I was towing a boat. Well, that's uh, probably the first boat I ever uh, <laughs> raced was a pilot hydroplane behind my my, my Stingray bicycle. And uh, uh, a lot of us started that way. And then uh, I, I grew up from that and, and eventually got into a limited, <coughs> excuse me, a limited hydroplane that was about 15 feet long. And just like a kid working his way through it, any sport to start with you know, little league baseball and then maybe you play high school baseball and then college and the pros. That's kind of what I did. I, I drove a lot of boats over the years and eventually ended up driving unlimiteds. What I've noticed, it's such a community where everybody seems to know everybody. My friend across the street, his dad knew Bob Gilliam pretty well. So his boat was the Hilton Hyperloop, that red boat with white highlights. The kid sure. down the the kid down the street, his dad was a milkman with a guy by the name of 
Bill Brow. So he mm-hmm. did the X side with the checkerboard tail and later the Miss Budweiser. The other day I was visiting one of my friends and, oh, we're from Ballard. Oli Bartle was our neighbor. Everybody kind of knows everybody. And a little trivia, a while back, a few years ago, my daughter was on my shoulders. I'm that type of dad. I'm walking her to the qualifications, and this white, generic Ford Escort pulls up. Hey, it looks like you could use a ride. It was nothing more than Chip Hanauer himself. Now, my daughter didn't understand that we are meeting a Joe Lewis of this era, but he's another David Williams. He's a regular guy, and he just saw the opportunity to help a dad and daughter out. And that's what the community is all about. The first time I set foot in that museum, I felt that I knew you and the others all of my life. And we shared something that did connect with all of our lives. Well, gosh, thank you very much. That's good to hear. We do try and offer a, a different experience at the museum than you might get in, in most museums. You know, everything here works. All the boats are restored to running condition. All the engines run. Uh, and we take them out and, and run literally across the country. I've been as far east as Buffalo, New York, and as far west as Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, we run the boats. Um, and when you come into the museum, we'll let you, you know, we'll lay a boat flat, let you sit in it, you know, sort of make motor noises and get your picture taken and pretend you just won the gold cup. We want it to be a friendly, fun, involving, inviting experience. We're, we're not one of those places where everything's behind a rope and you have to kind of talk with a hushed voice because you feel like you're in church. You know, we're, we're a bunch of regular guys who love the sport and, uh, and just want to connect with the people who are, are the fans. When I stepped in the other day, they would not allow me to pay admission because you and the crew were at the Tri-Cities with some of the boats. And, oh, they just walk in, shake hands, how are you today, Matt, that type of thing. What I would like to do is look at the year 1950. That's when the hydroplane races officially got underway in Seattle Give us the history of the hydroplanes in general, how far back they initially started. Well, powerboat racing is quite literally the oldest form of motorsports in the world. There were boat races long before there were car races or airplane races. The first sort of sanctioned, organized powerboat race took place in England uh, in 1903, but there were friendly uh, races long before that. First race in U.S. took place in 1904. And one of the things that was really unique, um, since powerboats were sort of a, a new invention when we started racing back in 1904, uh, the rules that we raced by came from sailboating uh, because the, uh, you know, the guys that raced sailboats have been doing it for decades. So our sport was just kind of copying the sailboat rules. And one of those rules was if you won a big race, you got to defend that on your home water. That was an advantage that you got by winning the race because you know, on your home waters, you'd know the, the, the wind, the currents, and you'd have a bit of advantage. So when we started powerboat racing, the winner of our big race, which was called the Gold Cup, got the opportunity to defend it on his home waters. Well, that meant that um, for a while, uh, the races all stayed out in New York, uh, in upstate New York, in the um, and then eventually they moved to Detroit in 1918. They moved to Detroit and stayed in Detroit for decades. Um, by 1950, the guys in Detroit, they were pretty confident they'd had this whole thing figured out. If you wanted to go faster, 
you just put in more horsepower because, you know, Detroit being the Motor City, their answer to everything was just bigger motors, more horsepower. Well, out here in Seattle, there were a group of guys who had a slightly different take on that. They figured, well, let's try and be aerodynamic. We live here in Seattle under the shadow of Boeing. Uh, we've got a bunch of aerodynamicists and engineers. Let's try and build something light and aerodynamic. Um, and the group that came together, it was Stan Sayers as the owner, Ted Jones as the designer, and Anchor Jensen as the builder. Um, and they built a couple of boats called the Slow Motion. Slow Mo 4 um, was the first um, unlimited they built. And they put an Allison engine in it, a surplus Allison from World War II. And they decided the first thing they wanted to do was try and set the world water speed record. At that point, the U.S. record was just right around 100 miles an hour, and the world record was about 120-something. So they uh, applied for the permit, and they got out to attempt the record. Well, you know, if they didn't go 160 miles an hour with that boat, so uh, they didn't just beat the U.S. record. They smashed it. They raised it by over 60 they miles They made an everything hour. else obsolete. In, in, a, in a single stroke, they made everything obsolete. So then they went back to Detroit to race for the Gold Cup. Well, Detroit... And the Gold Cup, um, it's, a, it's an oval race course, and the river is very, very rough. And all these knowledgeable old-time boat racers from Detroit looked at the light aerodynamic slow motion that sort of skimmed across the surface of the water, looking much more like an airplane about to take off than a boat, kind of shook their heads and pitied these poor guys from Seattle who didn't know the first thing about boat racing because, well, their little boat was just going to get beat uh, smithereens out there bouncing around in the heavy, rough water of the Detroit River. But what the guys from Detroit didn't realize is that it doesn't really matter how rough the water is if you don't touch the water. And the slow motion just skimmed across the top of the water, didn't get beat up by the river, um, lapped every boat in the field by one lap, and lapped almost every boat by at least two laps. And they smashed the record and won the the gold cup and brought it back to seattle so um back then since the winner of the race had to hold the next race every boat had to be affiliated with a yacht club and the, the boats um the slow-mo from seattle was uh representing the seattle yacht club so uh stan sayers came back to the yacht club and said hey guess what guys i won the race and now we have to put it on next year so the first race in seattle was 1951 um, and Sayers got a little nervous knowing that all these big names from Detroit were gunning for him, led by Horace Dodge uh, of the Dodge Automobile fame. Uh, but there was someone else, Warren Avis from Avis Ran a Car, um, and, and lots of wealthy Detroit businessmen. And they came out with about a half dozen boats to try and win their cup back from Seattle. Well, Sayers uh, decided that he needed a second boat. So he built the Slow Motion 5. Um, and between the slow motion four and five, he won the race five years in a row, keeping, <laughs> the race here. keeping the race here in Seattle. And in doing so, uh, created the first real big professional sport that was well-known on a national level. Um, during that time that the slow motion was dominating the sport, the, the people that were involved in the sport, it was like a who's who from the Fortune 500. We had... Um, Edgar Kaiser from Kaiser Steel and Kaiser Aluminum. I've already mentioned Horace Dodge. Uh, Sam DuPont um, was another fella 
that um, that was involved in hydroplane racing. Bill Boeing Jr. eventually got into hydroplane racing. So all of a sudden, the, the folks from Seattle kind of found that they were on the front page of the world's sports section. Um, and that was a pretty, a pretty cool thing. Now, just to, to briefly tie the story into something a little more relevant, um, the guys at the Yacht Club got to be really good at putting on big, large-scale events like this. But they also got a little bit bored after a while. They're doing the same thing. You know, they've been putting on Seafair for about five or six years. And uh, they started, started looking around going, what, what could we do next? What's the next thing that the city needs? Well, if you put on a very successful Seafair, what other type of fair could you put on? Well, how about a World's Fair? So the same group of civic-minded promoters that got together to put on the hydroplane race in the early 50s, then bid on and won the 1962 World's Fair. And you all know, I'm sure, that the World's Fair came to Seattle. And from that, we got the Space Needle and we got uh, the arena um, and we got uh, the monorail and just a, it was a huge boom to the city. But when that festival ended, when, when the World's Fair ended, the mayor of Seattle, a guy named George Clinton, challenged those same promoters and said, all right, you've done such a good job with hydros and with, with the World's Fair. Why don't you see about bringing professional sports? And of course they did. They ended up bringing, uh, first of all, uh, a baseball team that lasted for one season, the Seattle Pilots playing out there at Sixth Stadium. Um, that then went to Milwaukee and became the Brewers. But a little while later, they got, uh, they got the Sonics, they got um, the Mariners, the Seahawks, and we were in that big league of sports, but you can trace that all the way back to the very first sort of professional sport we had to, to hydroplane racing. That's kind of where it all started without hydroplane racing. We wouldn't have, you know, not just seafair, but we wouldn't have the space needle. We wouldn't have the, uh, wouldn't have got the kingdom or the, the Seahawks or, or any of the things that really make Seattle feel like Seattle. Yes, that was the first domino to push, and it got bigger and better and moved faster. The rest is history. I have a little bit of trivia for you. As okay, you great. As you mentioned, 1903 was the first hydroplane race. It was actually won by a woman, Dorothy Elizabeth Levette, who was born in 1882, and then she passed in 1922. She was also the world record ho holder on water. She had a speed of 19.3 miles, but that 1903 hydroplane race, she averaged 19.5 miles. I love the history. There is something in it for everybody. When we were kids pedaling those bicycles, towing that, a lot of girls in the neighborhood were out there, and the scary thing is they were just as good as we were at it. Absolutely, and, and first of all, kudos on, on the research. I am going to have to try awfully hard to stump you on something today. You, you have a great, great memory for HydroFacts. Um, one of the programs that we do down here at the museum is called J-Hydro. J stands for junior. And we work with kids between the ages of nine and 16 to build their own eight-foot hydroplane and then go and race it. And um, while they're racing, uh, they're, they're part of the American Powerboat Association, and they race all across the country. There are probably 550, almost 600 kids in the U.S. involved in stock outboard racing. But you would be amazed at how many uh, young ladies we, come, have, we have come down here and build their own boats and go on to become really spectacular racers. Um, 
And there's no reason that a woman can't drive a hydroplane. And there, there are many very good uh, female drivers. And before too long, we're going to have one win the Gold Cup. I'm pretty confident. Well, if you look at drag racing, a lot of those top fuel cars are women. But it's not a novelty. They just happen to be excellent drivers. That's how they got in the cockpit. Absolutely. Now, we've had a lot of nostalgia, a lot of novelties happen through the years. And I'm going to pick 1954. We had a guy from Detroit, I believe, named Wild Bill Cantrell. And they had a series of gel boats, the Gell's Rooster Tail Camp. They built a lot of famous boats, such as the Old My Gypsy. But anyway, Gell 4 ended up on the beach with a lot of rose petals on its deck. Could you walk us through that one, David? Sure. Uh, Bill Cantrell uh, was a real character. We uh, called him Wild Bill Cantrell. Um, and he actually got that name when he was a young kid racing outboards. And uh, he lost control of the boat. And the boat ran over some uh, unoccupied rowboats on the side of the, of the race course. And the announcer said, look at that Wild Bill go. So Wild Bill stuck with him throughout his entire career. He was really from, from Kentucky, but he drove for a team out of Detroit. He drove for the, uh, the Shaneth family who owned Gale Electric. Um, and uh, they, were, they were sort of the kingpins of the East Coast or the Midwest of the Detroit racing fraternity. They were the big money and the big name. And uh, they came out to Seattle and they were determined to, to win the race. And in 1954, um, the slow-mos were starting in a procedure called the flying start, where the race course was still where it is now. It was south of the floating bridge, sort of in front of the Mount Baker Seward Park area. And the, the slow-mos would mill around up by Leshi on the other side of the bridge, um, where the Detroit guys couldn't see them. And then just before the start of the race, they come screaming underneath the bridge at about 150 miles an hour, hit the starting line and surprise everyone um, and off to the races, literally. So in 1954, um, Cantrell decided that he was going to kind of throw a wrench into the plans of the, um, of the slow-mo team. And he swung really wide in front of the bridge uh, and tried to tried to get in the way of the slow mos. Um, the problem is he spent so much time looking over his shoulder to try and catch the slow mos and and you know throw up a rooster tail and awake in their way that he lost track of where he was going. And he did drive up onto the beach uh, and landed right in the center of a of a rose garden. Um, he claims um, after that that oh there was a steering malfunction and the rudder was installed backwards. Um, well, it's kind of hard. For him to run four or five laps with the rudder backwards and then all of a sudden at one point uh he loses control so i admire the effort an a for effort on his part yes. but a very interesting side note to that is um that house was owned by a guy named doc johnson uh, a well-known physician there in the the leshine mount baker area but he sold the house to someone who became an even bigger hydro fan he sold the house to art oberto and that is where the Oberto family lived um, the entire time that they were sponsoring hydroplanes. And Oberto became one of the huge sponsors of hydroplane racing in Seattle. Um, and uh, 
Art used to have legendary parties on race day weekend. Um, lots of food, of course, lots of good food, uh, lots of friends. And they would all sort of stand there on the beach where the Gale 4 had gone up uh, on the beach some 60 years earlier. It was tag, you're it, now it's your turn. They handed over the torch. And that property yes. lives forever. I love it. In 1955, <clears throat> a Boeing pilot by the name of Tex Johnston did his own to upstage what Cantrell did the year before. You know what I'm talking about. Sure. So in 1955, the Dash 80 was being debuted. The Dash 80 was the, the prototype of the, the 707. Um, and the, um, that week, there was also a convention in town of an organization called IATA, the International Air Transport Association. So all of the airline owners um, and, and executives were in town for a big meeting that was supposed to take place Monday morning at the Olympic Hotel. Um, Tex was a firm believer in that uh, Dash 80. It was, a, uh, in his mind, a beautiful plane, a, a well-handling plane. And he wanted to do something that sort of would show off to all those business execs that were in town what a wonderful plane it was. So as he, uh, he was scheduled to do a flyby, just a slow flyby at about 1,000 feet. Um, and uh, Tex decided that he would show everybody what the plane could do. And he did a barrel roll with the plane right over the race course, right in front of uh, all the fans and spectators. And then he took to make good on it. He turned around, he came back and he did it again. Um, and um, Bill Allen, who was the, the CEO at, um, at Boeing commercial aircraft called poor Tex into his office the next you know, Monday morning and said, what the devil were you doing? And Tex just goes, well, I was selling airplanes. And that Monday when the IATA conference opened up, that's all anybody could talk about was that amazing Boeing 707 that could actually barrel roll. Um, and they ended up selling an awful lot of planes off that maneuver. A passenger jet, a passenger yes. jet doing that over tens, hundreds of thousands. Unbelievable. In 1972, the Blue Angels were officially part of Seafair, correct? Well, the Blue Angels were part of Seafair on and off over its entire history. The, um, they, they flew exhibitions as early as the, the early 50s, but they've been coming almost, well, except for COVID breaks, every year since 72. My mom told me a funny story. When they first came to town, it wasn't that long after the Korean War. And World War II wasn't that far away from the Korean War. One of our old neighbors knew the sound of a fighter jet. And when the Blue Angel circled, because we were, we were below the Boeing flight pattern. When the jets were coming in, we could see the wheels drop out. They're getting ready to land. When that woman heard and saw a Blue Angel banking over our neighborhood, she took cover. She hit the dirt on all fours quick. I guess that was a common story. People had to understand you're not under attack, but there were those that were terrified because what else would that be? <laughs> That's a great story. I, I had never heard that story before. Yes, her name was Dorothy Lund, and once in a while it floats in the neighborhood, but this is going back in my early childhood. This is the early 60s. That Oh, yes, it happened. Very cool. Well, what's your earliest member? Mem remember earliest memory 
of a hydroplane race. What's the first one you went to? Well, the first time I saw a boat run was in 1965, and it was Ronnie Munson in the Green Dragon, and do you ever have a beautiful rendition of that boat? And then there were others out there. And so that was the first time I saw it. In 1966, we kind of stayed home watching stuff on TV, and I have a 1966 story after our break. But 1967 was my first race, and I remember briefly my favorite driver, Jack Regis, momentarily had the lead in the Notre Dame inside lane, and then things happened. Yeah, that was that was quite an accident that Jack had in 67. Um, and uh, that was shortly after the, the, the 66 season was just a horrendous season with four drivers killed, and 67 started with a fatality in uh, down in Tampa. So when Jack crashed and then his boat got run over by another boat called the Harris Club, we all worried that maybe we'd just seen another fatality. So we were really happy to hear that that no one was honestly very seriously hurt in that very spectacular yes. accident. That was Chuck Hakeling with Jack Regas, and they both went on to race later. And that's what they do when they walk away or they could just kind of spend a few weeks in the hospital and get out. They're back in that cockpit the following year. Well, well, some are some of the some of the guys get smart enough and eventually retire. That's uh, we're I think we're all grateful that Chip Hanauer retired before anything happened to him, um, oh. and uh, Billy Shoemaker is another one who retired while he was still um, healthy. And Chip Hanauer was knocking on the door of Bill Muncy's win record. I think he Muncy had sixty three, Hanauer had sixty two. I believe are those the numbers? Yes. Yeah. And so, and that's- he honored the man. And it's like Barry Sanders, he honored, he was honored by many players. Sure. It, when Walt, Walter Payton's career, he was very honored by that. I appreciate that. I, I do too. Yes. Now, I worked at an old Kaiser plant. And when I was new there, did you know the Hawaii Kaya 3 used to come here on the West Coast <laughs> tours? This is off of East Marginal Way. And we're an old gypsum plant. I worked there for 26 years. But those guys, one year, would get a case of beer, visit with Ronnie Munson, the Hawaii crew, and all the tools, all the maintenance guys were there, the mechanics. And the following year, it was Jack Regis they got to meet. And so we were on the map. We were somebody. We had the Hawaii in our garage. That's very, very cool. Congratulations on that. Now, are we getting ready for a station break? Okay, this is Matt Shea filling in for Gary Matz and Suzanne Mitchell. And yes, that is David Williams himself from the Hydroplane Museum. We'll be right back after this message. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. 
Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Bringing good vibes to the Puget Sound and the world. Alternative Talk 1150. Hi, this is Matt Shea filling in for Gary Matz and Suzanne Mitchell. We're welcoming you back to the Matz and Mitchell Show. David Williams of the Hyder Plain and Race Boat Museum is with us. Dave, you got to let people know how to get there. You must have at least one good website and some phone numbers. Please share that with us. Sure. Uh, you can go to www.thunderboats, T-H-U-N-D-E-R-B-O-A-T-S dot O-R-G and find out about hours and admission and a map. Uh, you can click on that and get directions. Um, we're open every day but Sunday and Monday. And uh, you can also give us a call here at 206-764-9453 and we'll be happy to answer any questions for you. David? Admission, yes, you are practically letting people in for free. People six and under are free, and then the, it goes from $5 to $10. And again, I've been in there more than once where they wouldn't charge me because you were out throughout the country doing ex exhibitions with some of the boats. Just an incredible place. Now, on I-5, you take exit 152, Arilla Road. That's the Kent Des Moines Arilla Road, and you will hang east going down into the Kent Valley and within a minute you're going to see the traffic lights for the 200th and you just take a left there and eventually within a minute or so you will see the museum on your right it's that place with all the hydroplanes and the sign that says the hydroplane and race boat museum now I have been there quite a bit this museum is constantly doing musical chairs a boat that used to be there is now there. Now I could go over there and sit in one of the Miss Budweiser's. There is always a three-ring circus going on. This is by far one of the cheapest halls to rent out. They have retirement parties here. They have had wedding receptions there. They've had birthday parties, company parties, on and on. Dave, tell us about that. Well, we do rent the museum out. It's it's one of the ways that we generate money to pay the rent. 
And we've had every kind of event you can imagine. We've had weddings, we've had wedding receptions, we've had memorial services, uh, we've had high school reunions. I have two high school reunions coming up in the next two weeks. Uh, last weekend, or right before Tri-Cities, uh, we had a wedding reception. Um, it, uh, it is a very inexpensive place to rent. It's 500 bucks. Uh, we will pull boats out depending on how big your group is. We have a house band that's made up of museum volunteers that are incredibly talented. So if you want live music, we can bring you live music. Um, it's a great place to hold an event. I've got a story about events there. A buddy of mine a few years ago was kind of down and out. He was between jobs. I took him out for a hamburger. We're college buddies. And afterwards, I said, have you ever been to the Hydro Museum? Oh, I've heard all about it. I said, I'm a member of it. And I also got a free pass. The Hydro Museum when you join that, you get a lot of free things. And when I was there last, a shirt was thrown in with it. So my buddy Tom starts talking nonstop about what the hydroplanes meant to him in his childhood. And my friend's mom, she would officiate our racing. Sometimes it would be raining out, so we'd be at the table in the dining room, and she would officiate who is cutting in front of you and what the rules are. When they were outside on their bicycles, she would flag you if you got out of bounds, if you cause an infraction. He kept talking about her. So finally, we show up at the museum. Tom, we've been trying to find you. It was that woman's memorial, and it was her request to have the whole neighborhood there and to have it at the Race Boat Museum. They were kind of stalling. Did anybody get in touch with Tom? He moved a few times. He's changed jobs. We have some intervention going on here. He made it in time, and the neighborhood was complete. I met some very nice people, and then I moved on. Wow, that's a great story. I did not know that story, Matt. That's, thanks for sharing that. Yes, that museum, I have been there. So I'm from the outside looking in. I've watched people step in there the first time. Their mouth is wide open. Their eyes are huge. They're looking around. And they'll say things like, so this is what it's all about, or where have I been, or how long have you guys been here? Oh, we got to go. They start mentioning all their friends' names who have got to see this museum. When I go to that museum, I see a lot of people who have been there many times, but it all started with that first time. Once you get there, you're going to frequent that place the rest of your life. And I'll put that in writing. People do. <laughs> they know to go there. Thanks, Matt. It's yep. always changing. There's always something new there. Well, it, exactly. We have more boats than we have room. It's amazing how big these boats are, how much space they take. And even with an 11,000 square foot museum, you know, if we had, if, if we were a, a model car museum or a doll museum or an art museum, you can put a lot of artifacts uh, in that much space, but you can't put a whole lot of unlimited hydroplanes in that space. So at any given time, we'll have 12 boats on display um, and we'll, Shift them in and out. Right now, I've got a boat that we've loaned to the Daytona Museum of Speed down in Daytona, Florida. Uh, but when that one comes home, we'll have a welcome home celebration for that and send someone else down there. So outside yeah. of the parking lot counts because every so often you have a few out there and, hey, boats do get wet. Now, off the top of my head, I do not know of a more amazing human being that I've heard of, read about, and watched than one Myra Slovak. And give us the history of Myra, just how he well, entered sure. the country in his life. 
Myra Slovak, uh, first of all, was a, a tremendous friend. And in full disclosure, um, I wrote his biography. And uh, at the end of this story, I'll tell you where you can get the biography. But Myra was born in Czechoslovakia just prior to World War II. Um, and he lived through the Nazi occupation of, of Czechoslovakia. Um, and uh, then as the war wound down, the Russians came in and chased the Germans out. And Myra told me, we thought the, the Nazis were bad until we met the Russians. And the Russians were 10 times worse than the Nazis. Um, the Russians uh, literally raped and looted their way through Czechoslovakia. Um, the, uh, Myra's family, uh, his first exposure to the Russians, they, they owned a farm. Um, and they had a, a large hunting dog that was kind of their, his name was Leo and he was their pet. Um, and when the Russians came into the farm, they started foraging for food. Well, like any dog, the dog was barking at strange guys. So they put the dog in the kitchen and eventually one of the Russian officers came up to the, uh, the kitchen door and pounded on the kitchen door. And um, Myra's mother opened it about you know, six inches and sort of, stuck her head out and said, what can we do for you? And, and the Russian um, pushed it forward very roughly and stepped in to demand food. Well, when he pushed the door open, the dog did what any dog would do. It, it leapt to defend its, you know, its mistress that was in its, the dog's mind being attacked. Well, the Russian just shot the dog in the head uh, and the dog bled to death there on the floor in front of Myra, you know, 13 year old Myra watching his dog bleed to death while the Russian demanded that his mother make him food. Uh, that was the start of many uh, harrowing experiences that Myra had at the hands of the Russians. Um, eventually, the Russians left. Uh, Myra grew up. He joined the Air Force in Czechoslovakia. He really wanted to be a pilot. Shortly after Myra joined the Air Force, there was a communist coup in Czechoslovakia, and that put the Russians back in power, and it was now a communist country. Um, in a, an amazing uh, indication of how talented Myra was as a pilot, by the time he was 21 years old, he was a captain in the Czechoslovakian Air Force. Um, the, um, there was a purge. The, the Russian governments often had purges where anyone that wasn't supportive of their way of life was arrested. And there was a purge in Czechoslovakian airlines, and a lot of the airline captains were arrested so there were vacancies in the airline so the airline borrowed military captains and put them in charge of civilian flights so my removed from the air force to check airways at this point he already knew that he'd had enough uh enough of the russians and he decided that he was going to literally hijack his own airplane one night he was a pilot he was going to take on a couple guns uh smuggle him in give them to passengers the passengers were going to come join him on the flight deck and arrest the co-pilot and the navigator. And they were going to take over the plane and fly it to freedom. Um, they codenamed this operation picnic so they could talk about it amongst themselves without being suspicious. They could say, what's the weather look like for the picnic? Well, what type of food are you going to bring for the picnic? What day do you think we should have the picnic? What are you going to wear at the picnic? And it all sounded innocent, but they were—they were all talking code. They were talking code and planning this escape. 
So about a week before picnic was supposed to happen, Myra was in the ready room getting uh, prepared for a flight. Um, and the, the ready room phone rang and Myra picked it up. And there was just a voice that said, Myra, the secret police know about picnic. And then the receiver slammed down. So he was, he was frightened that the Czech secret police knew about his plan to, uh, to escape. And he decided he was going to move everything up. He was going to do it uh, that night. So um, things, uh, he smuggled the guns on board. He delivered the guns to his partners. Um, and then he sat waiting for the plane to get permission to take off. And the whole time he's sitting there, he's thinking, they're going to arrest me. I know they're going to arrest me. Here they're coming. I know they're going to arrest me. Um, and then it was his time to go. So he called the tower and said, Prague Tower, this is check flight you know, 110. We request permission to start our engines. And the word came back, uh, permission denied. And that was weird. That had never happened. So Myra's heart begins to beat and he gets a little bit nervous and he calls again, you know, check tower this is check flight 110 permission to start our engines denied maintain your position uh, he waits 10 more minutes he goes back on he asks one more time tower we're requesting permission to start our engines and then he gets the bad news stay where you are prepare for military boarding and in his mind he knows that he's absolutely done for and you kind of imagine the scene and he told me he could imagine that and he's sitting there in the dark at night with the, uh, in the airplane waiting to start the engines. And he can see, he can imagine a green military truck with you know, canvas sides come rolling up and block him in. And then the canvas gets ripped back and a whole bunch of, of soldiers with, you know, in black uniforms with machine guns climb out of the truck and surround his plane and he's going to be arrested. Well, while he's imagining this, a green military truck with canvas sides pulls up and screeches to a halt in front of his plane and blocks him in. And then the canvas gets pulled back and uh, eight soldiers come out and surround his plane with automatic weapons. And he's thinking, all right, this is it. I'm, I'm not just going to be arrested. I'm going to get shot. Maybe I should start the plane. Maybe I should try and you know, run him over or escape. And he realizes, no, that, that won't happen. And all of a sudden, there's a pounding on the side of the door. So he sends um, his flight officer back to uh, open the door. And an Air Force uh, officer comes running in and, and comes up to the cockpit and says, Captain Slovak, we need your help. We have a piece of cargo for the military base in Brno, Czechoslovakia, that's needed urgently. You're headed that way. Will you please take this with you? And Myra breathes this huge sigh of relief. Uh, and he says, all right, is that all? Sure. So they load this big wooden crate on his plane. The truck leaves and Myra takes off. Um, and he starts flying towards his actual destination, his Brno. And the plan is to go about 10 minutes towards Brno, then drop down below the radar, change directions and fly for West Germany. So he executes this maneuver. He goes low. He flies towards Germany. As he's flying towards Germany, he's being chased by MiG fighters and he can see tracers going by the cockpit and he's trying to juke and turn left and right and avoid the tracers. And finally, he gets to Germany uh, and he's across the border and he radios the tower uh, in Frankfurt and asks for permission to land. Um, and the military base, the 
the military, U.S. military base in Frankfurt, refuses him permission to land because they don't know if he's really a defector or if he's some secret plane from from communist uh, controlled Czechoslovakia that's carrying in bombs that's going to try and land and, and blow the airport up. So they deny him permission to land. Um, and then he starts calling other airports and no one will let him land. Eventually he decides that he's going to fly across the channel to London. So he turns the plane and heads towards London. Um, he's about to reach the point of no return where he'll have enough fuel to get to London, but has not enough fuel to turn around and come back. And he calls the London tower at, uh, and is told they're socked in. They have no visibility. You can't come to London. There's no place to land. So now he's just sort of circling there at the edge of the English channel. And he gets finally a call from Frankfurt that they've, his request has gone up the chain of command the commander of the base has decided it's a legit defection. He can come back and land. So he comes back. He lands. He's um, met by the CIA, and and he's given some pretty extraordinarily positive treatment. And they're they're, they're treating him very well. And and uh, he's going through a, sort of a debrief the day after the hijacking. Um, and he he doesn't understand why they're making such a big deal of him. He's just a captain and he just defected, and, but he's no war hero. And finally the CIA agent that's debriefing him says, all right, so tell us about that crate. And Myra goes, I don't know. It's just a wooden crate they put on my plane. So, oh, come on, you must know what's in it. Well, it turns out that what's in it is an entire set of Russian documents and plans on how to build a nuclear air force base. They were going to build a new base in <laughs> Brno. They were shipping the construction plans, and Myra just happened to steal them and bring them to the CIA. Um, so needless to say, Myra became quite a hero within the CIA, um, and eventually he moved to the U.S., and as a reward for his service to the country, they gave him the job of being Bill Boeing Jr.'s personal pilot. Um, and uh, so Myra and Bill became close friends. Uh, Myra flew Bill everywhere. And in 1956, when Bill decided that he wanted to race unlimited hydroplanes, um, they were flying back in Canada uh, and they'd been talking about boat racing the whole time. And, and Bill said, Myra, uh, have you ever raced a boat before? And Myra goes, oh, sure, I race boats all the time. Um, well, would you like to race my boat? Absolutely, I'd be thrilled to race your boat. Myra didn't speak English well. Bill didn't speak Czech well. So the miscommunication where there was, Myra had raced boats, but all he had ever raced was a kayak. He had never raced any type of power boat. Um, but Myra did tremendous in the Miss Wahoo. Um, he, um, he raced for Bill Boeing for a number of years, but he also raced for other teams. He won uh, the national championship in a boat called the Miss Bardall in 1958. Um, he won another national championship in a boat called the Tahoe Miss, uh, driving for Bill Hera. He also won a gold cup. So he became an incredibly successful driver. Um, and my connection is that uh, in 19, I'm sorry, in 2009, um, Bill Boeing asked us to build a replica of his Miss Wahoo. Um, and we agreed to. And when Myra heard about that, he made it a point to fly up to Seattle about once a month to check on the progress of the boat, kind of look over my shoulder 
Um, and we became very, very good friends during that process. Um, I interviewed Myra hundreds of times, recorded the interviews. And then when Myra passed away in 2014, um, he and I were actually working on his biography. So I was able to finish his biography. It's called A Race to Freedom, the Myra Slovak Story. Um, and we have, um, we have optioned that for a movie and we're working on a script and, and who knows, maybe in four or five years, we'll have the Myra Slovak story come out as, as a movie, but he was incredible. I could see that happening. What I really liked was when he acquired citizenship in America because of his background and so forth, he initially was not allowed a pilot's license. President Dwight D. Eisenhower gave an executive order for him to be allowed a license. So Myra wanted to win the unlimited hydroplane race on the President's Cup in Washington, D.C., because it was customary for the United States president to award the driver the first place trophy. In 1959, he won that race at the Potomac River. Dwight Eisenhower himself handed him the trophy, and he thanked Dwight Eisenhower for his citizenship, the executive order. He's an American, and he's got a pilot's license. And that was the will behind winning the 1959 President's Cup. That, that is, I, I'm, I'm going to talk about a little technicality there. Myra was allowed a pilot's license. That was not a problem. The problem was you could not get an FCC first class radio operators permit if you had ever served in the Communist Party. And since Myra had been a captain in the Communist uh, Air Force, he was denied an FCC permit. You could not become a commercial airline pilot unless you had both the pilot's license and the FCC permit. So in order to get that FCC radio operator's permit, um, Myra uh, and Bill Boeing went to uh, Scoop Jackson, who you may remember. Henry a, Jackson, yes. Yeah, Henry Jackson, the senator from Washington State. Uh, and Senator Jackson sort of walked it through and then, uh, then Eisenhower signed it. So that, that's the paperwork that was necessary for Myra to become a commercial airline pilot. And then he went to work for Continental and he flew for Continental for about three decades. What I remember about when he became an airlines pilot, they had a problem because they invest money on their drivers. So play it safe. Okay. He's not only racing these unlimited hydroplanes. When we lost three drivers one day, he was the first one, you know, the highest placed one in that race to live through it. Between races, he was known to climb into a biplane, do stunts, stalls, cartwheels, everything, land it, get right back in and set records at a hydroplane. That's really pushing his luck for what other pilots are investing in. And I believe he was giving an ultimatum. It's either us or that. Uh, he, he was. He actually got fired from Continental once for winning a hydroplane race. Um, and then the... Uh, he did what what many of us might do if we lost a job unfairly. We called on our best friend. So Bill Boeing called the president of Continental Airlines and said, what are you doing firing your best pilot just because you won a hydroplane race? And he was rehired about a week later. But that, oh, that's a... You got an EF Hutton with Boeing. Uh, you you <laughs> yes. say yes, and how high do I jump? Yes. What an amazing story, and I don't see how that could not be anything but a movie. Just incredible. I'm 65 years old. Of everybody I've done research on, 
Myra Slovak is the one that leaves me in awe. That is the most amazing story I've heard about life. It's Myra Slovak. He was he was quite a gentleman. People people really loved him. Yes, and I believe some of the Hollywood people liked him too. I think he got in that circle a little bit. He did. He dated as a, a well-known starlet. Um, Susan Oliver was her name. Um, and for for any of the listeners that might be Star Trek fans, Susan Oliver was the green girl in the pilot for Star Trek, the, the alien woman with green skin that danced to seduce Captain Kirk. That was Susan <laughs> Oliver. That was Myra Slovak's real-life girlfriend. That's incredible. Now, Dave, one more time, let us know how we could contact you, the museum, how somebody could order one of your books. Sure. Um, the book Race to Freedom is available at the museum. It's also on Amazon um, and uh, just about all online bookstores. Um, to, to reach the museum, go to www.thunderboats, T-H-U-N-D-E-R-B-O-A-T-S dot O-R-G, or just give us a phone call at 206-764-9453. I love that. And then I have a website as well. I'm very proud. I have a free audio book that truckers throughout the country and families have contacted. It's that type of good Hallmark thing. So if you go to Matt Shea, M-A-T-T-S-H-E-A, books.net, you not only find that, but I have some free stories, my Amazon links, lots and lots of interviews. And boy, I want to put something down there now about the Hydroplane Museum. And I have a email address, which is workinmat 7 W-O-R-K-N-M-A-T-T-7, at AOL.com. And I do my very best to write everybody back who's written me. And so this is fun, Dave. I have so much fun when I enter the doors of that museum because I never know what to expect. I bumped into Steve Reynolds there, Chip Hanauer. It's just incredible. I've run into David Williams many times. Well, Matt, this has been a blast. I always enjoy talking with you. I always enjoy when you visit the museum. And... Call me back anytime. I'm always happy to talk with you. Oh, trust me, you're going to see me. You know, you know this voice of mine. I'm a little clumsy. You see something knocked over. I guess Matt's here. Now, next week, we've got a sensational show. We got Carl Vogel on. And in 1979, the city of Des Moines has declared that his house was indeed haunted. Carl and I lived in that thing for five weeks, and we've got stories. And then we will talk about casinos. He used to be a car dealer. I was a driver. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and why casinos are not such a bad place after all. Matt's admission wishes everybody the best, and we look forward to you next week. Thank you. Thank you.